All right, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga's Reading Club, uh, and not Alpha Booka Booka as it's been suggested. This is the Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club, and today we are discussing, as previously announced, the old is dying and the new cannot be born from progressive neoliberalism to Trump and beyond by Nancy Fraser. Uh, this book uh, is a very short book, uh, mainly uh, the, the, f- the first half of which is uh, consists of, a, of a, an essay previously published in American Affairs, and the second half of it is an interview with the author uh, conducted by Bhaskar Sunkara, the editor of Jacobin magazine. Um, so in this short little book, just to give a very brief uh, summary of what's actually in it, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, it basically argues that what what she calls progressive neoliberalism was a, a sort of legitimation of neoliberal rule that uh, that ended up vanquishing what was uh, previously hegemonic, which was uh, reactionary neoliberalism. So in some ways, you can see this as a story of uh, the Clintons and the Blairs taking over from the Reagans and the Thatchers. Then what happens is that Trump emerges as a reactionary populist, but when he actually comes into office, becomes a hyper-reactionary uh, neoliberal. Uh, and that this configuration is not stable, she argues, that uh, that the sort of Trumpist compromise between uh, a kind of quasi-racist sort of politics and a neoliberal form of uh, political economy uh, can't quite hold together. And so the solution is a Bernie-style progressive populism, and that's the only thing that can save, save us and become a sort of stable counter-hegemonic bloc. There was a lot of big words in that description there, so we're going to try to explain this out and, and hopefully not uh, rely too much on these big words and actually explain out what we mean as we go forward. So first we're going to talk a little bit about what we each individually thought of the book uh, before we take a whole series of really excellent questions we received from you guys uh, via Twitter, Facebook, and email. So uh, to kick us off, uh, yeah, what, what did we think of this uh, this short book or, or pamphlet, George? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. it the, but the best thing about it is that it's it's short, so you can actually um, it's it's quite it, it's clear that the first half is an essay um, or was previously an essay, and it's, and so therefore it is succinct and it doesn't waste too many words in putting forward um, her argument. I think one thing which I did find quite useful. Um, whether it's actually completely true or not, not entirely sure, but it was a useful distinction between these two different parts of, of hegemony. This is the way that she unpacks it. Um, that basically any um, in the since the mid 20th century and any capitalist hegemony in the US and Europe, so any kind of articulation of ruling class ideas, has had to have two different aspects of of right and justice. One focused on distribution and one focused on recognition. So. The one on just focused on distribution, how society should allocate divisible goods, especially income, and so this is about economic structure and class and the divisions obliquely. And one on recognition, so how um, society should apportion respect and esteem. So ideas about status hierarchies. It's quite a quite an obvious point, maybe to a certain extent, but just trying to um, apply this division to various different ideologies, I think, is actually quite useful because it allows you to say right so what what are the, what are the ways in which they're marrying up these specific claims about how goods should be distributed and how esteem and respect should be distributed and i think you it allows you to to just basically make this this important distinction between the class analysis and then the the, the kind of the ideological analysis of of um various different 
political formulations. Yeah, I found those categories very useful too, though it might be worth spelling out what exactly hegemony means. I mean, it, it, it's so used nowadays, but I think uh, George, as a, as a Gramsci expert, maybe you can give us like a one-line explanation of what it is. I think Nancy Fraser does so in the book as well. But um... So yeah, not to disagree with, with Fraser, but it's basically class compromise. It's, ba- it's how um, the... Well, there's there's lots of different definitions, and there's I can see a Perry Anderson book on my on my bookshelf, the H word. Um, so yeah, I mean it's had obviously a lot of different um, definitions, but the simplest one I think is that it's how the it's basically ideology. How does the ruling class make its ideas seem natural and 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 gain wider assent from various different parts of society? Yeah. That was that the correct answer? That was, the, yeah, correct. Yeah, gold star. <laughs> um, yes. Phil, th- th- thoughts on the book? Uh, those categories are pretty useful, I thought. You, do you agree? No, I agree. Um, and I thought it was very useful as a whole. I mean, there's, I think there's lots to disagree with, but that in itself is useful. And But I think particularly what she's very good at is um, the being very insistent and clear on the fact that progressive what she calls progressive neoliberalism that she identifies as the kind of um the professional liberal middle classes academics lawyers um the kind of top tier of the ngo movement um so that kind of uh, you know kind of corporate lgbt um society types those kinds of people that she identifies as the kind of cadre and social constituency for progressive neoliberalism and she's very insistent that the triumph of neoliberalism um, could only happen with um, with the support of that constituency. And I think that, you know, she doesn't retreat from that. She doesn't qualify it. She's very clear that neoliberalism could only triumph with progressive neoliberalism. So she puts it that um, the kind of the progressive emancipatory caste, the way in which neoliberalism sold itself was the condition of its triumph. And I think that's absolutely true. And is um, to her credit that she's so um, insistent on that. Uh, notwithstanding that, I mean, there's a lot. I think there's a lot to disagree with. And I would, um, uh, notwithstanding, again, you know, kind of how you define neoliberalism, I'm, I really find the um, rehearsal of tire. What I think are basically, you know, the title of the book, "The Old Is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born," was take is taken from Gramsci from the twenties. So I mean, if that was true, then then it means we've been living in some kind of tortured interregnum for the last um, hundred years or so. and But there isn't any recognition of that in the way in which he structures the book. And so I think the, um, the, you know, the rehearsal of these kind of tired Gramscian phrases is, shows just how cliched they are. And also I think there is like a petrification of leftist thought so notwithstanding the kind of the um, the good points of her book, which I mentioned, um, there is still the way in which it's framed and some other problems as well indicate a certain kind of an ability to break past the encrusted kind of growths of the past. Well, the other good point I'd say is also just before we kind of maybe get onto the critical points, but the other point is she makes a point about the switch to shareholder value as well um, in the way in which uh, capitalist success was understood. And how that's a very important, you know, how kind of firms began to understand um, what they were about, how they understood their time horizons, how they related to employees, how they related to each other, how they related to the state. So the switch to shareholder value is the kind of guiding lodestar of um, capitalist behavior. I think that was a good point as well about one of the markers of um, 
the kind of behavior that typified neoliberalism. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree about the, you know, the use of, of the sort of Gramscian terminology and concepts. I think it's quite useful. And the, the, the idea that we're currently living in a sort of interregnum uh, is a very useful one and one which we actually will be discussing in uh, the next episode. I mean, we've already recorded it, but you, uh, dear listener, will be hearing it in the, the next episode out. It's the next free episode out uh, discussing no, sure. the interregnum. So um, just foreshadowing that um, and, and actually. But, uh, so, and, you know, and I, so when we have that in, when we discuss that with Runa Stahl about the interregnum, I mean, I support the idea that we're going through an interregnum now. But my point is, like, you know, if you quote Gramsci, Gramsci was talking about an interregnum back then. So, you know, it seems to me, you, ha- you know, if you want to say that this entire period since the 20s has been an interregnum, the no, 1920s. Why, why? But there's been inter- there's been periods of hegemony being firmly established after there, the Second World there've War. There have been interregnums between interregnums. Yeah. So there have been. That's, that's but, really helpful, George. Uh, Thank you. No, yeah. but, that really I clarifies think, I think things. Being, I think you're being a bit unrealistic here. Because this is like a fifty-page book, and the pages are small, and it's not a historical <laughs> account. It's not it. It's basically she's putting forward a, what I think is some useful concepts, and you, you you know you don't agree with all of them. No, you don't. I don't think you, you have to, and um, I certainly don't. But I think the the way that she's framing it is the useful bit, and then you look and you can bring it bring in some other information about how to explain how we got into this situation and maybe her, her um, diagnosis is, is good and then her, her suggestion of what we should do about it is, is less compelling. So I think it's expecting too much to give a no, no, history no, no. of the 20th century and no, 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 an account of the present that. in I 50 make, pages. No, no, I'm making a more modest point. I'm saying that the, um, I think cliche, the cliche, it's not just her sin, but I think the cliched Gramscianism, I think, is a, and this isn't even like, you know, um, this isn't even criticizing Gramsci or Gramscianism, but I think there's a way in which some of these points are consistently optimism, not pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, the old is new, the old is dying, the new cannot be born, all these kind of um, stock phrases that are repeated ad nauseum across the left. I think they inhibit thinking more than they help to um, produce it. And so um, I'm drawing attention to that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, obviously, yeah. yeah cliches, cliches are bad. Cliches are cliches we are agree. bad. Um, I, I just wanted to pull out some other points. One which is relatively obvious, but I think uh, Nancy Fraser does a good way of elaborating on the a, a kind of common sense understanding of what has happened to politics, culture, and economics in the past. Well, since the end of the Cold War, which is the the idea being that the the right won the economic war and the left won the culture war. Uh, I can't. I was trying to remember who said that originally. Uh, whether that's been attributed to some to anyone in particular, or if that's just one of these sayings. Any ideas, guys? It's another cliche. I, think, I mean, I think it is attributed to somebody, but I can't remember who exactly. Yeah, I, I, I tried to Google, but I, I um, after two pages, I got bored and, and did something else. But uh, the I think the book illustrates how the, a little bit the mechanics of how that works quite well, because what you have uh, in the eighties with Reagan Thatcher is. And this is, I guess, implicit rather than be her saying this explicitly. But there's an all-out ass- assault on labor by capital. And it has fairly conservative social mores, um, which, which it mobilizes as, uh, as, as a sort of mode of legitimation. 
And, you know, that that's Ray, thinking of Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, they were still kind of conservatives. And once that victory has been achieved and the Cold War is over, to establish legitimacy after that victory, you need a more progressive neoliberalism, something a little bit more inclusive, which tries to pull in uh, the support from mi- minorities, both sexual and, and, and ethnic minorities. Um, yeah, neoliberalism with a human face. Exactly. Human. That's it. And uh, and pull in support of the middle classes who Range are otherwise, difference. who are liberals, I guess, and might not be explicitly, uh, may not be explicitly neoliberal in their thinking. They're not um, free market dogmatics or anything like that. But they are they are liberals. But to buy middle class liberal support, uh, they can't be you know they can't be homophobic anymore. So they have to be you know open to 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 gays. And you can have uh, you know you can see it like where it leads up to where you have Uber, for example, sponsoring Pride and stuff like that. Those are classic examples of, of progressive neoliberalism, which uh, which Clinton first and then Blair uh, mobilizes very well. Um, and I think that's well, think, well depicted in the I book. Th- and the, uh, just yeah. one. One last thing about just about the, the kind of um, the historical trajectory that, that she charts out, which is that then as progressive neoliberalism is uh, losing legitimacy, partly under the impact of, uh, of, of, the, of the consequences of the 2008 crisis, um, the declining uh, status of the middle class, um, and, and so on. I mean, we know all the, the kind of broad economic consequences that you get something which comes to challenge progressive neoliberalism, which initially looks like it's diametric opposite, which is to say uh, a reactionary populism, uh, which is which, you know, she talks mainly about U.S. politics. That would be Trump as reactionary politics. Of course, when he by the time he comes into office, he drops all the populism and, and populism here really means just a kind of more uh, redistributive agenda in, in, in economics or a greater role for the state in, in, in economics and so on. Um, and that he then becomes a form of hyper-reactionary neoliberalism. So more reactionary than Reagan and Thatcher, but in terms of the economics of the thing, broadly speaking, mm. the, same, the same recipe. Yeah, I mean, so that's I think we can be I think we can be a bit more specific about the about what progressive neoliberalism was and I think it's it's quite useful to to do so because I I don't like phrases like counter hegemonic blocks or historic blocks or any, or or things like this but I think if you actually look at what were the classes or what were the class fractions which entered into an alliance in in progressive neoliberalism that's quite revealing for a number of reasons. One, it, it, it allows you to, to sort of see some of the affinities between their ideas. And secondly, it, it, it then suggests how potentially it came to unravel. And I think she spells this out quite clearly that progressive neoliberalism was an alliance between sort of the mainstream liberal com- uh, currents of all these various new social movements, so feminism, anti-racism, kind of environmentalism, LGBT um, uh, plus stuff. And then the most dynamic, high-end, symbolic financial sectors of the U.S. economy. That it was these two different groups. And then she breaks it down as well. She says, "Well, what were the ideas about distribution that they had, and what were the ideas about recognition? Well, the ideas about distribution were expropriative, plutocratic, fundamentally neoliberal. And then the recognition ideas were meritocratic. And it's there's a, there's a, these two things are not incompatible." And I think that's an it's quite an obvious point, perhaps. But it, and you see it if you ever go onto Twitter, you see it. Um, so many examples. But there was a way in which you could crack the glass ceiling and have a free market. And these two things really they're they're, they're not incompatible because you 
the, the, the people that you say deserve respect or rights are the people with the most um, with the most merit. And so you're already saying there's a there's a kind of um, explanation there, which which can lead to a very unequal or very um, one sided society, because there's no necessary guarantee that everybody will have um, an equal amount of merit. I think there's also, though, the um, so I mean, two things. I think there is recognition, you know, I mean, the whole premise of Blairism was on um, there was a redistributive aspect of it, which was um, to uh, redistribute towards kind of uh, on the basis of victimhood and um, the most kind of marginalized and the most dispossessed, and also going to war on the basis of um, to relieve human suffering and to defend human rights so the most kind of oppressed and miserable people around the world could uh, rely on um, NATO support or something. So, I mean, that's maybe a dynamic. Yeah, a sort of message. humanitarianism at home, at home and abroad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, so I think that's something perhaps that she misses. My main issue, so I think progressive neoliberalism is a great, you know, it's a great identification of a social group. The main, my main issue with it is perhaps that she doesn't run far enough with it. So, I mean, I think it's still pre prevalent on the left. Um, but mm. it's very easy to kind of um, identify Tony Blair and the Clintons, uh, Hillary, as well as Bill, but also Obama, all as progressive neoliberals. And everyone on the left will agree that, um, you know, they'll talk, they'll complain about left liberalism being left liberals themselves, right? So... There is no, um, I don't think that she pushes hard enough and doesn't cut as incisively as she needs to in order to make her point. So just blaming Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and Hillary for um, progressive neoliberalism isn't sufficient, but it requires actually, you know, so many kind of woke radicals don't think that they're liberal, um, even though they're like the um, very much the entrenched um, supporters of progressive neoliberalism with their politics of recognition, but they think of themselves as radical. And this, you know, it's a much harder fight than she makes out. And so it needs to, her argument needs to be kind of made, um, it needs to be turned into a theoretical weapon and it needs to be given a much sharper edge than she's willing to do, at least in this short book, because I think it means um, cutting away at the kind of people that she might wish to have as allies. And at the end, mm. in her interview with Sankara, she yeah. talks about the need for a kind of intersectional approach which I think precisely meshes very well with the continuing progressive neoliberalism of the left at the moment. Right. I, this is, I'm glad you said that because I, I did want to come on to that. Like the, the people who are social liberals, I mean, the, the, let's say the progressive uh, component of progressive neoliberalism, uh, consider themselves to be liberals and not neoliberals. They want to uh, use the state to uh, pursue egalitarian aims. And in that sense, they're very much liberals and not neoliberals. Um, neoliberals working on the on the basis that uh, that kind of such state action is is prohibited. Um, but yet, because they are they have no uh, real economic critique or critique of the market, they there's a kind of default assent to to neoliberal forms of rule. So they continue carrying on thinking they're fighting the fighting in the name of social justice. But because they have no critique of the market, they don't really get beyond that. I think Phil, you're going even further, and I and I and I suspect I agree that even those who think that they are critical of the market still uh, retain a hyper individualist notion of of politics, um, 
where uh, which which still keeps them effectively being neoliberals. Uh, I mean, not just hyper. I mean, I'm not even sure it's hyper individuals, but like a politics of recognition whereby the assumption is that it's identifying the specific. Um, it's identifying the specific problems of your particular group and that the state is there to offer you redress right, yeah, and no. also that it's essentially meritocratic. The idea is that if you, um, that everyone, you know, that you, that this particular group of individuals confronts barriers to their, um, to their natural um, capacities, if these barriers are removed, they'll effectively be able to flourish. And it's essentially, you know, so I mean, progressive neoliberalism is the, last bastion of the meritocracy perhaps and so it's very much ties into all the kind of middle class hopes for um rising through the ranks and i think that's yeah um, and I th- I th- she's unwilling yeah. to go far in that critique i should have gone just to correct myself i should have gone further i mean what what really is is at stake is that they have no real critique of the current order what they want to do is just rearrange the chairs to a certain degree on it in yeah, terms yeah, of yeah. who gets awarded the right amount of recognition uh, mm-hmm. of status they don't want and to he, rearrange and, 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 the chairs they want to rearrange the people who are in the chairs well right <laughs> that was a semi-serious point no i think the she talk, she does talk about this a little bit and i think this is why the way that she frames it is in some ways more useful than talking about identity politics whatever that might or might not mean because she hits the nail on the head that for a certain fraction but not all but a certain fraction of of some of these new social movements there has been an absolute reduction of equality to meritocracy so the aspiration of abolishing social hierarchy and essentially these movements making themselves obsolete as any you know any socialist or, or communist project wants to make itself obsolete by abolishing class society the idea instead becomes diversifying inequality so you have a certain fraction and not all feminists who talk about leaning in cracking the glass ceiling but it's only for those with existing economic social cultural capital and so i think this is this is why i found it very interesting because it does give you it does you know i think and it's unsurprising that another book of hers feminism for the 99 percent, another short book which also good um it is about how how should how should the feminist movement respond to this partial co-optation of some of its aims and that co-optation has been particularly important because it's given the veneer of emancipation to what's been a neoliberal redistributive project so yeah, I, I, just, I agree yeah i i just wanted to actually bring something up which which comes up in the interview um with uh, with baskar sankara where uh, baskar asks uh, should we be in other words giving these center-left forces that we're both very critical of credit for certain victories. Now, let me just spell that out, what that actually means. There genuinely has been a change of, in, in consciousness within the establishment, to a large degree, uh, to that they're not explicitly racist and sexist uh, in the way that they used to be, right? We And we discussed this uh, way back with James Hardfield on an episode called Woke Neoliberalism uh, about how, how that trajectory played out in the UK. And so this is the question, right? I think we, we accept that genuine change in, in consciousness the way that uh, certainly in Britain and, and to, to a lesser degree in, in the United States, but the way that uh, race isn't used as a, as, as a form of rule anymore in the way that it used to be, um, that you can have a, you know, you can have a multiracial ruling class even and that everyone's accepted, but you still have a, you know, you still have vast inequality. Um, 
what do we attribute uh, to whom do we attribute that change? You know, to that to those victories, uh, and and they are victories. I mean, I think we sh- we should be explicit about that. You know, yeah, they it's, are. It's very it's very good that there's a lot less sexism and racism than there was 30, 40 years ago. Um, do we attribute that to center left governments? Do we attribute that to radical movements and uh, and the effect that they have had in either forcing governments to become more liberal, more socially liberal, or in changing the broader social consciousness? Or is it something more structural that's happened behind people's backs? That some that something about financialization or something changes people's relationship to one another and uh, leads to a, a, a less racist society? That's I think a good probably question. the market. I think the market. The liquidif- liquidification, liquidification of um, uh, you know all that is solid melts into the air, um, and the neoliberal state is um, you know that the the market has an emancipatory aspect to it, and so insofar as the neoliberal state uh, helped to or the neoliberal order as well helped to dissolve um, some of the inherited um, kind of racial the old empires and racial ideas that were embedded in the social democratic order, I think that's probably attributable to the market because it's never gone as far as the radical social movements ever wanted. I mean, you need to contrast kind of um, uh, kind of gay marriage with old-fashioned queer liberation to see that. So I'm not quite sure, you know, it's, I don't wish to dismiss the efforts of so many kind of campaigning groups, and I'm sure there's very specific... Um, concrete kind of legislative changes say i don't know like uh, rape in marriage for instance that that's now considered illegal that i think you can probably identify as the effort of of um it necessitated and required uh, conscious intervention by um uh, groups that were organized in order to achieve those things but broadly speaking i think insofar as um there's been the emancipation of certain minorities um, and groups within um, capitalism in our era, it's attributable to the dynamism and emancipatory mold of the market and has simply been given, it's, it takes the form of, um, it appears as if it's sometimes the pro- achievement of a centre-left government, but it's simply the market dissolving gold hierarchies. Maybe, think, maybe, but the, but we know that and, those we know that those hierarchies are created by capitalist society as well, that they're not just holdovers from a pre-capitalist past or anything like that. So, sure, it and, and, and we can and it see, dissolves. And we can, and we can see today, actually, the, the emergence of kind of new reactionary movements. Um, so, you know, it's not as if the market has complete, has the progress of uh, commodification and alienation mm. leads to less racism and sexism. In fact, it, it, it brings forward new new forms, which we're seeing now. And, and you can, you know, the whole reference to, to hyper-reactionary neoliberalism that, that Fraser makes um, is, uh, you know, is, is an example of exactly that. That I'm, that, that I'm but, less convinced by. I think she, um, so I mean, I think so, you know, she makes the good point that Trump has actually done very little in terms of the, um, the kind of populist redistribution that he made kind of gestures towards on the campaign trail. And that most of his successful policies have been effectively um, have effectively just been the regular um, relief for millionaires, kind of Republican tax cutting stuff. So, notwithstanding that, yeah. though, you know, she he has done two things, which is, and you know, I, we can't falter too much on this, given that the book is short, and that it's um, that there's been you know things have developed quickly over the last couple of years. But he's held back the imperial war machine more than neo previous neoliberal presidents did. A, and B also that he um, his tariff wars and his protectionism I think are genuinely novel. 
and they don't fit any kind of model of what you would call hyper-reaction neoliberalism or anything else. I think they well, any form of neoliberalism, yeah. Yeah, I think they fit a different model um, of how how capitalism is to be governed and whether or not it whether or not it embodies a new kind of more durable order. I guess we'll have to see with um, with whether or not he wins a second term. Um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, those don't fit what she calls hyper-reactionary populism, and I don't really buy that he's worse than Reagan or Thatcher. I think that's just a lack of historic perspective. But just just to return quickly before talking about Trump, perhaps in a bit more detail, to Alex's question about who gets the, who should we attribute, how should we explain the very real victories <clears throat> that Alex was talking about? I think she she does give us a a way, a framework to understand this that it is precisely in this alliance between certain aspects or certain demands made by various new social movements and. A specific aspect of, of um, financial capital, the that it's precisely in the the strength of the demands as a whole of of these groups that meant that a, a fraction of them, a fraction of those groups, had to be levered off and had to be taken into um, into a neoliberal project. So I think the, for example, with with feminism, it's the fact that there was a strong material demand that couldn't be met without fundamentally changing society that meant that that a fraction of feminist demands that could be satisfied without really having to compromise on some of the distributive aspects um, of neoliberalism that meant that they were then sort of levered off and and gradually in a in a molecular way as as Gramsci might might put it um, were, were then taken over to this to this um class alliance and i think yeah what's often called you know, recuperation think, yeah and i think that's that is important because it does it does recognize that you know these are ultimately then um attributable to the success of or the the radicalism of certain aspects of these emancipatory movements but that they need to you know this is the, the task at the moment is to go back to some of these uh, material demands and say, right, these are the things, that, these are the ways that we want to abolish these social hierarchies and be quite materialist about, about it in, in that way. So I have one, I mean, I do have one um, critical point that I want to raise and that maybe segues into some of the questions that we want to kind of answer from our listeners or engage with from our listeners, which is, I think it's um, the main problem with, um, with the book is that it's saturated with New Deal nostalgia. And I think that's a genuine problem. Um, so she says at some point, I think it's in what the interview section with Baskara, or sorry, with with Sankara, <laughs> um, that she. Um, uh, why are you laughing? Why is that funny? <laughs> it's just when you conf- when you meld someone's uh, uh, like first and second name. Like if I were to call you Philip or something, it'd be it'd be you know. Or, <laughs> uh, well, it's easy with these American names because you know, like first name and second name can be easily confused with American names. So um, anyway, um, what is that? <laughs> anyway, New Deal nostalgia. Let me get back to my point. New Deal nostalgia, um, because she, she says in the interview with Sunkara at the um, that you know there was an enlightened fraction of capitalists who saw that they needed to um, kind of construct a new order that was more beneficial for society as a whole. That's her kind of reading of the New Deal, and um, 
that seems to you know like really i think to really kind of um push that thinking she should also think about you know i mean the same point can be made about the disintegration of the keynesian post-war consensus an enlightened fraction of capitalists saw that capitalism couldn't continue anymore with the kind of social democratic order of um, the Keynesian consensus after 1945. And so just as much as when they put to an end the interwar liberal order and replaced it with Keen with the Keynesian kind of New Deal order, an enlightened fraction of capitalists decided they had to put that to an end as well. And now she should be, you know, she was really kind of um, being dialectical about her critique. She would be thinking about what enlightened fraction of capitalists are thinking about how to use Nancy Fraser's ideas in order to put to an end neoliberalism and to in instigate a new um, a new capitalist order, mm, ooh, which might yeah. be, um, you know, which could build on her critique of progressive neoliberalism. So I think for the, the issue is that she, um, she identifies the problem as neoliberalism and the solution is populism, when really the problem is capitalism and the solution should be socialism. But she isn't willing to be that consistent and incisive with her critique. So that's I'm glad you asked that question. And it's a really nice way to put it about what fraction of, of capital today or or even individuals are thinking, you know, how do we get beyond neoliberalism? And but, you know, obviously retain <laughs> retain a society of class rule that there's no. But, you know, and, and I was trying to think through uh, her suggestion that uh progressive populism is the only answer or is the only because she she makes a point that not only is it obviously her her desired um or amongst the plausible options her desired solution but also that it's the only stable configuration that could possibly work and i think we're going to come on to this when we when we respond to some of the uh, listener questions but that mm -hmm. i think i think well, it's also just 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 really quickly yeah is 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 one option that she overlooks um a kind of hyper progressive feudalism so this is how you could describe um, to, to go back to Kalibunga. Right. How you could describe the, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley ideology. How you can describe this, this because it combines an extremely hyper meritocratic um, view of um, recognition, politics of recognition, with a with an ex an extremely accumulative. Um, so think back to California feudalism and Joel Kotkin interview. Um, to, I mean, that's that's one option that she. I don't know how widespread this really could be, but this is a dystopia that some people see as yeah. around the corner. No, I I, I I agree with that. Give, I mean, it's, give it's kind of people UBI and yeah. own the whole world in with five people. I mean, it's a doubling down in some ways on the worst aspects of what we have today. Yeah. I, I I don't think that. I think I guess the point would be that that isn't a particularly stable configuration. It's not a stable block because um, too many. There's too many people. Too many losers in that. Um, set up basically um it would but well i'm so thinking this through as well right so what i what i would could imagine also being possible is actually a, a genuine reactionary populism where you do have a, a an incorporation of sections of the masses through specific reforms which is able to for example boost um boost power of consumption amongst the masses uh, so you know in in some respects a return to to sort of some forms of Keynesianism, but also all wrapped up in a much more uh, exclusionary and, and nationalist sort of uh, configuration, right? And and one could imagine even a kind of yeah. you know what what's often called like a Bonapartist solution in a in a in a much more authoritarian sort of mode, where after another massive economic crisis in the next 
five years or something, 10 years, that out of that emerges uh, a, a kind of Bonapartist reactionary populism, right? Where uh, through military yes. rule, and I'm not saying necessarily in the United States, but, you know, um, perhaps in perhaps more in the semi-periphery uh, that you have uh, more direct military rule or some other form of authoritarian rule uh, where the masses or sections of the masses are incorporated through through certain handouts, you know. Um, that's not yeah you could have a you could have a you could have a bonapartist party or a bonaparty if you if you wanted um but a serious point is that the the, the way that I don't she know sets if it we up, can when, take anything seriously anymore to be honest yeah, yeah, the way that she that. sets you it up stupid boner party <laughs> it's not it's not a bunga bunga party well i guess maybe there's elements of crossover there anyway but 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 populism isn't a politics of um redistribution or politics of distribution and so that's why i think i agree with phil that the formulation of what the alternative has to be has to be something which specifically or it has to be if it's a two-word formulation one one of those words has to refer to a politics of distribution which is counterposed utterly to neoliberalism and that has to be socialism so it has to be something socialism populist socialism for example, uh, I'm not sure I, I necessarily agree How about with that. I we mean, just ditch the populism. Well, sorry, are we talking about what we what we're proposing or what we think is actually a, a you know a, a plausible strategy for reorganization of, of capitalism from the top? I think I think I think populism is entirely plausible. Is uh, you know I mean it might be given different kind of inflections and. Um, it might not be clear to us how it will kind of stabilize at this particular point in time. But I mean, it's, an you know, the kind of the as offering a kind of more cohesive politics as justifying redistribution, rebuilding social institutions that were pulverized under neoliberalism, um, giving kind of uh, less justification for freedom of movement, uh, for labor, for laborers, for workers. I think all of those things um, are very much, uh, you know, populism is a viable way of reorganizing capitalism on a new basis. Yeah, and populism in a more, I guess, Latin American sense. I mean, it looks more like, I don't know, Peronism or something than it does um, that, you know, they have the incorporation of certain sections of the masses. Um, but uh, and, 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 you know, with, with obviously like whatever various contemporary figure, uh, contemporary um, aspects, which, yeah, again, restrict you know much harder restrictions on immigration and something like that you know that's that's a conceivable means of of reestablishing legitimacy and, and and responding to the desire for authority today um that i was that also is, reading is, as well i was also reading apparently that trump's renegotiation of nafta has um some kind of measurable improvement for american workers within it which weren't contained in the original um you know in the original agreement as it as it played out for American workers, at least. Um, so, I mean, I can think, you know, something more of that uh, developing. I mean, if, you know, if we think if we're if the parallel is, um, you know, to Trump and Reagan, we're in the first term still. Right. So if the if Trumpism isn't a historical contingency, but is going to have a second term, then it will become much more solidified and clear as to what its kind of uh, long term features or stable institutions look like mm -hmm. once it becomes more established. Second term is guaranteed. I mean, Ooh, that's, big, that's, that's a big right. goal. We should. I'd... I put money on it. It's it's no, it's it's, a, it's, it's too pounds. far. It's too far away. Still, I don't think you know. They, they, I, British I, pounds. I'm, <laughs> they're, they're worth nothing. Your British pounds. Um, <laughs> that's why. That's why George was being ironic as usual. He always plays it two ways. You see, like, that's worth like three dollars. <laughs> so 
Um, okay. No, I, yeah. Should we? Sorry, I, should... I, I interrupted. Yeah, we need. We should go to the people. We should go. We let's should, let's, um, go, let's go to the people. Yes, exactly. Let's see. All right. People versus the podcasters. All right, so let's move on to uh, listener questions. Thanks again uh, to everyone who sent the uh, questions and points in. We're going to try to uh, be able to discuss them all, respond to them, or comment on them. Uh, so the first one is uh, from uh, Sepsomnia on Twitter, at S-E-P-S-S-O-M-N-I-A, who asks, is there anything new in this? This just sounds like another late-stage capitalism won't let us imagine new things. We need new things. Won't someone rally the people behind a thing that we don't know what it is? Um, Being ironic there. But... uh, and, and then uh, I'm going to bring in another question at the same time uh, because it's on a similar uh, along similar lines, which was sent in by email by Spencer. Um, Spencer asks, is there anything new here that isn't contained in other Marxist analyses? Um, and then goes on to comment uh, relatedly that they are pes- that the, the Spencer is pessimistic because you need Marxism to challenge neoliberal hegemony. And these ideas, you know, that is to say Marxism are only confined to academia today. Um so uh, first of all, yeah, is there anything is there anything new here that Nancy Fraser is saying that hasn't been said a million other times in the past ten years, George? I think or or <laughs> Phil. I was going to say, well, I mean, just um, identifying uh, progressive neoliberalism, I think, is a useful contribution, and she deserves credit for being, you know, being. I mean, I said she wasn't as bold as she could be with it, but I think you know she's given a useful label to something which is very familiar to anyone who's engaged in public debate at the moment. Yeah, I think it's one of those uh, it's one of those books that's worth reading because it it gives you something that's quite useful and seems really simple afterwards and doesn't seem that new, but then you're just like, ah yeah, that that clicks. And that is precisely yeah, progressive neoliberalism that it has these it has these two aspects. What it, what is its politics of distribution? What is its politics of recognition and how how do they fit? together and i think that that it doesn't necessarily disagree with some other analyses but the clarity of the framework is is useful yeah that would be my that would be my take yeah i'm i agree with you there i think and and as i said as well charting kind of what exactly trump represents to what extent is he a break with progressive neoliberalism i think is also worth exploring in exactly those categories that uh, that you've just mentioned george and that you actually laid out uh, at the at the beginning of the of this uh, of this episode um I think the one thing where I, I, I kind of agree with the, with the with the suggestion made in the question, which is, you know, we need new things. Why won't people do the new thing that we need to happen? Uh, is that it? It's a little bit. Yeah, this is the kind of lazier side of it, where it just goes. We need progressive populism, right? So t- trying to use the same sort of concepts, but a, a reconfiguration, where um, you maintain a sort of you know social liberalism. Um, or, or at least a sort of inclusionary approach to, to politics, which is like, let's say, class first, which is a formulation I really hate. But anyway, you know, it's, it's basically class politics. It's, in these terms, economically populist, but which is not uh, exclusionary in any way. It's not restricted to white male workers, but um, is, is universalist. Up till there, all fine. I think any so that's a basic description of any socialist politics will have to be uh, universalist and uh, and 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 have the the interests of the of the working class first. 
Um, but where I think it's, hang on, let me do, just to finish, where I think it's, it's yeah. lazy is that it, the contours of that aren't spelled out very well. And it kind of just go, hand waves at, at Bernie. I don't think she even mentions Bernie Sanders necessarily, but it hand waves at the, the current phase of, of what is left populism, which, as we've discussed before, seems to be actually, unfortunately, reaching its end other than other than in the United States where it has yet to be tested out but you kind of think if you're I, I you know I'm, I'm all in favor of Bernie but I think it'll that will also be something which will reach its end and needs to be overcome rather than seeing that as the be all and end all um, and in that sense she doesn't go further in, in thinking that through yeah I don't think there's any kind of magical formulation that can be put in a 50 page book that suddenly names what we need and then suddenly everybody's like yes those are the magic words now Mm, we're in a position um you have to recognize the extremely weak material basis for socialist politics across europe at the moment and by socialist politics i mean people who are really prepared to defend democracy and prepared to extend that to the economic sphere so i mean that might i think it's it's important that we that we have these these conceptual tools but i don't think it's um um, I think expecting something completely new is is un, unrealistic. Maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe it's just been a, a long day, and I'm like, yeah. Well, no, but it, but, it's, but it is no, no. But it's difficult to think through what what might be new in 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 today's circumstance when there isn't a real social movement to um just generating to, to, ideas, to latch, which is generating ideas or or reconfiguring who the actors are in politics. Because you know that's that's the thing. There's no or new whom actor you could through. take ideas to in order to right. um, Indeed, clarify. Yeah. In whose interest certain ideas are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's move on to the next question because we're going to uh, deal with it. probably a lot of the things that we're thinking about uh, that, that these questions prompt uh, will be dealt with in the course of responding to the to the following ones. So uh, at Envy Surface on Twitter asks, how do we action the strategy of separation, which is, uh, which is the term that Fraser uses just to explain what it is. It's basically cleave off working class minorities and women from the block of progressive populism and cleave off the traditional working class from reactionary populism. Um, especially as uh, Fraser says, we need to tackle racism and sexism head on. Uh, won't, th- this is the question, won't this just alienate traditional workers uh, or the traditional working class, in, in quotation marks, who only hear this as elitist interests or neoliberalism. So, I mean, sorry if that sounded a little bit confused because that was me trying to uh, summarize a question. But the the basic point is, one, how do we action the strategy of separation? And two, if you're saying uh, to the traditional working class, uh, hey, jo- you know, join us, this is a new kind of socialist, populist block, uh, and we are going to be anti-racist and anti-sexist here, won't they just hear that as, oh God, here's more uh, know-it-all elites telling us how to behave and what to say and what not to say? I think the pro- so I think framing it in terms of a strategy of separation, I think it's problematic because it suggests um, it's limited to an idea of, uh, you know, mon- kind of electoral block mongering in the context of American politics. But I think yeah. really, the I mean, the answer to the underlying instinct um, is to cast it in terms of freedom. Uh, everybody's interest is in freedom, not to have uh, your uh, personal life regulated by the state, not to have feel the kind of pressure of forced conformity to um, tradition. And so it's freedom and that this is entirely compatible with um, 
proletarian politics as classically conceived and the interests of um, of workers everywhere. So I think if you dissolve those um, if you dissolve those uh, divisions in a project of freedom, which is not just kind of greater political rights and um, effective representation of political interests, uh, but also uh, extending that to um, the economy, then I think that in it already in immediately resolves um, this problem. So I think basically it's a problem which is kind of it only appears to be it's a it's not insignificant, but it's one which is somewhat a it's a one of perception. And framing it as a strategy of separation always is still kind of stuck in this idea that there are these, um, you know, it's about building an electoral alliance essentially between different groups rather than seeing it as a project of emancipation and social transformation in which the groups themselves are changed through the process of social change. That's yeah, that's a really good answer. I mean, I, I agree. And I think, you know, we can see the contradiction maybe a little bit in, in Bernie Sanders because Bernie actually does very well, I think, in the fact the one that the single thing that he does best is mobilizing a discourse of freedom uh, uh, specifically in this aim both in terms of uh you know, significant economic reforms, uh, as well as in terms of in relation to uh, to other forms of oppression, let's say. So I think he does that very well. But again, you're still stuck within that sort of electoralist logic of uh, reconstituting blocks uh, of pre-existing sets of people, rather than leading to a reconfiguration I mean, of who's there. Um, go on, George, sorry. No, I just think this is a, a really good question. And it's a really difficult um, a really difficult one because we can't um, you, I think you can't deny the a- appeal of, of still the remaining appeal of some of these um, progressive strategies of, of recognition and I think progressive neoliberalism still or, or its remnants still do have some appeal and I, 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 I agree with Phil that framing things in terms of freedom this is this is important it's a universalist appeal and that has to be at the core of it. But it seems to me that in the, the, the most difficult thing for the left to do at the moment, but the most important one, at least in the European context, is to frame things in terms of democracy. And in terms of here is here, the, the demand is for control over various things, over, over decisions made in the political sphere, over decisions made in the economic sphere. Um, and this is not about who's... Um, how to appeal to certain groups and, and try and move them off in electoral um, uh, alliances. It's even a it's a prior question to that. We haven't even got to that that stage yet. It has to be about widening the the sphere of decision making and such, such that when these political um, allegiances are able to be made, that they can have some real impact. Um, and I think that is a real. It's, a, it's quite a risky strategy at the moment for the left to, to engage in, but one that's necessary because we're not in the ascendancy. We're, we, we seem to be in various ways under the boot. So we, But turning our back on the, the, the possibilities of, of political struggle and I guess the, the consequences of political decision making, that's, that's going to alienate people from any left project because it's essentially saying we don't need you to, um, to achieve our aims. Right. And when you do get new uh, new sections of the people coming into politics, suddenly out of the blue, uh, it'd be a grave error to tell them, hey, shut up, you've got that's wrong, <laughs> rather than uh, try to, in some sense, respond to, to what actually is there. Um, mm. So uh, to move on, uh, 
this is a slight change of tack in this question, but uh, Gabriel Goffman asks uh, something along the lines of productivity, uh, that the falls in productivity led to to neoliberalism, to the neoliberal reorganization of the economy. Um, And so basically, why? Why did that happen? Uh, And a kind of related question uh, more about the economy is that with precaritization uh, and other changes in the labor force, how do you organize and unionize in in this situation? So what is the solution for organizational solidarity in the 21st century? That's a big question, which I would love to have a, a, a quick answer to, um, and I don't, and I don't, I don't think George. We, ha- we have some, we have some, no, we have some listeners who are really keen to 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 engage in political action. They just they they want to know what to do about things, which is which is uh, good. I think the how do you organize in the twenty first century? I mean, that's that's tough. Uh, the only it, thing I'd say, it, I think it's usually set up as a question in which um, we're presumed to be in more difficult circumstances than the past. So that, um, you know, when everyone is kind of uh, wears a cloth cap and goes into a smokestack red brick factory and works on a conveyor belt with a tool and has to wear overalls to work and and everyone is white, cis, het, etc., whatever, male, blah, blah, that that's much easier to unionize and to organize than the kind of... Um, intersectional precaria that we have today. I mean, that's usually the way in which the problem is framed. Um, that lack of homogeneity makes it much more difficult to organize. And I just, so, I mean, I don't have an answer as to how to organize, but I think the assumption that things are more difficult to organize now than in the past, I think must be must be misguided. If you think about the sheer, um, you know, the sheer brutality and difficulty of life in the past, um, you know, the kind of health problems, uh, the much greater poverty, the much greater illiteracy, the much greater oppression of women, the general kind of lack of um, access to technology, um, all of those things seem to, and the fact that people surmounted them and did forge successful and enduring social and political institutions makes me think that it's probably much easier today, in fact, to organize and that the problems are mainly if- political than organizational. If you want to feel lazy or like a bad organizer, you can read um, a Roncier book called Proletarian Nights, which is about all these French workers, I think 19th century, who basically were working all day and then just like boozing and discussing politics into the early hours of, of the morning. Um, and that, you know, they the amount of effort and energy that that would have taken was was quite staggering. And the fact that we can now have all these different tools that we can utilize to organize must must at least open some opportunities but to respond to the productivity falls leading to neoliberalism point which is a, the question which is a massive one i mean the, the short answer is isn't it something like the like progressive neoliberalism depends on a particularly um symb- symbolically important um part um fraction of capital so one which is hollywood silicon valley um, aligned, and so it is. It is partly a consequence of financialization that gives this fraction of capital um, more power than industrial, or more um, salience than industrial capital. So it's not. It, I mean, that's not a very complete answer to a difficult question. But they do seem. They do seem linked that that dynamism and that symbolic importance comes from financialization, which is of a of a piece with. Neoliberalism. My, my understanding is that the so that the um, 
decline in productivity leads to a reorganization of capitalism. So that productivity, you know, I mean, implicitly in the question is the idea that product falls in productivity cause neoliberalism. Um, and that I think is a really, uh, it's a really kind of challenging basic idea. And I'm not sure that we're, I'm not sure that we can answer it straightforwardly because there's so much, um, there's so much kind of complexity and difficulty in the in trying to think through all those uh, enormous kind of post-war economic and political trends, um, as well as all of the debates about productivity now. You know, why isn't there any obvious boost to productivity as a result of the greater use of technology? Um, why do we still have such kind of labor intensive? Why is we more labor intensive than ever with precarization? Um there's no way to answer it simply, I don't think, at least um, not at the stage that we're at at the moment. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, Jacob in Alberta firstly asks, uh, there are kind of three sets of questions, but um, is economic liberalism uncoupling from political liberalism? And does Trump therefore represent just a pure economic liberalism without another justification? Um, and he mentions that uh, one could imagine the professional managerial class and the one percent voting for Trump instead of Bernie if it came down to a Trump versus uh, Bernie election in in twenty twenty. Um, should we discuss that first? Um, I mean, I'll I'll just feel that firstly, just that. I mean, I think that's I think that's right. I think political uh, political liberalism has no home today because economic liberalism has swung. Uh, I mean, firstly, it, to the extent that economic liberalism was carried forward under this sort of progressive guise of, of progressive neoliberalism, nowadays I think one can see that very much under threat, very much weakened. Uh, in a way, knobs or neoliberal order breakdown syndrome is. Uh, precisely a, a reflection of the loss of hegemony of progressive neoliberalism. So, you know, it, political liberals uh, are you know, are also kind of suffering from from knobs in a way, because there is seemingly no vehicle for um, for that sort of for that sort of uh, you know, political liberalism, which which is could which would be seen as vaguely social democratic reformist today. And there's no real vehicle for that today. Um Guys, uh, is economic liberalism uncoupling from political liberalism? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I think the the, the book is useful because it does um, give you some ways to think and about how this this could happen. I think the the sort of the decisive event, um, which the question refers to, can you see the PMC voting to Trump over Bernie? That's an interesting question because. There's certainly, not to bring another liberalism into the mix, but there's certainly a cultural um, liberalism or cultural element, um, which I think is is the primary um, way in which certain aspects of the American commentary or the American professional managerial class um, respond to Trump. So it's not about particularly the economic policies or the or the the politics, but it's the mode of expression. It's the the is what he represents um which uh, ironically is a member of the you know potentially their own class um in in government but he just he breaks some of the cultural rules which means i think they would probably just not vote rather than vote for either trump or bernie which is uh, potentially interesting in itself 
Yeah, or who knows? Maybe maybe a, a continuity neoliberalism candidate emerges, like running as an independent or something like that for president. Um, should it come down to? I Trump mean, is it Bernie? is it definitively too late for Hillary Clinton to join the, the presidential <laughs> race? Now it's her turn. She was just she was just four years <laughs> early. Ahead of, um, ahead of ahead of the time. Okay, so uh, just quickly, uh, let, let's move on, I guess, then to to a question from uh, Dan in Baltimore. Um, these are quite dense. It was quite a long email. Thank you for for sending in, actually, a really interesting email. Um, we'll try to deal with as much of it as possible in the time that uh, is left to us. So Dan writes, firstly, uh, that Fraser writes. The forces destroying the life chances of people of color are part and parcel of the same dynamic complex as those destroying the life chances of whites, even if some of the specifics differ. Basically, that, you know, classes is what is uh, most determining. Uh, Dan asks, has the concept of white privilege outlived its usefulness under current historical conditions? Uh, Is the hegemonic crisis so deep in part because the old systems of race, gender, etc. have been uh, corroded by the hyper-individualizing effects of neoliberalism. Uh, cites the, the opioid crisis, for example, which is hitting uh, you know white males in, in their 50s who supposedly are the most privileged peoples in, in the country following the logic of, uh, of kind of privilege theory uh, are actually suffering quite gravely. We've sort of addressed this question a little bit already, haven't we? Uh, do we have any, any want to add to that? I, I mean, guess, I mean, I'd I think say the concept of white privilege, I never think was useful. I think thinking of the, um, I don't think casting, uh, you know, you can say that rights, that certain people's rights are being subverted or abused or restricted, but I don't think casting the achievement of rights for particular groups as privileges, I think is um, entirely wrong-headed because it runs the risk of undermining the very concept of the achievement of rights. You know, so saying, um, you know, that uh, yeah, that certain rights have been won and recasting that victory as privilege for certain groups over others, I think that's always been um, deeply, in, entirely misconceived way to understand what's what's happened in the past and what's happening now. So I'd say not only junk white privilege now, but also that it was never useful to understand what happened in the past in terms of uh, both informal or formal racial hierarchy. I mean, it seems it seems to me like a like a very American term, which I haven't, which doesn't really come across. You don't come across quite so often in the British. Uh, that's because you're not. The, that's because you're not in the academy anymore, George. That's why you're lucky to <laughs> no. But but, but so I mean, but, but it is that's, right. That's my it, non- it is right that, that academic privilege. Yeah, but that certain categories emerging from the particular American historical experience and, and imposing those elsewhere is uh, a surefire way, way to mystify. Uh, you know, society and, and make sure that you don't understand what's actually going on. So uh, yeah. it's rarefication, man. <laughs> is that but, a point? Um, but, is that a point of fact, personal privilege for you, Alex? But, but in fact, what I was going to say <laughs> is that the I- ideas about white privilege seem to have sort of entered a bit of a, a, a. There's been a reaction against it, a kind of dark, quite well, very dark reaction, whereby people who who um so particularly young white men who seem to have all the benefits of society and on one reading um on their side do not feel to be particularly in a good situation to put it extremely euphemistically and we see this um uh, phenomenon in in america particularly of the you know the the extremely uh, hyper individualized hyper nihilistic 
extremely violent young white man who doesn't seem to um, accept the, the category of, of white privilege and in fact reacts against it in a, a whole number of um, more uh, well completely incoherent um, ways so I mean I think I don't think it's necessary I, I mean I don't think it's as a as a white man I don't use the term all that often um no but i mean uh, yeah a more serious point that i think that it's if you go into these categories you you run the risk of of having this kind of white uh ident injured identity politics which is not helpful and there's another thing that it's much better it's much more important to analyze trajectory of certain groups than their absolute status um, so even though, you know, white people in the United States might not face uh, much discrimination or might not face uh, harassment from police in the way that many black people do in, in, in many areas, uh, that doesn't mean that ne they're necessarily feeling that things are great and that they have so much <laughs> that they're in a privileged position. And, you know, important to remember, privilege is a, is a term that's associated with aristocracy. So it's, you know, it, it, when you're talking about relative advantage of one group in society versus another, um, you know, Fundamentally, we're talking about small differences within the broader mass of people, which uh, is completely dwarfed by the difference between uh, between the, the the ruling class and the rest of the people. So, you know, um, I think that's where the divisiveness of this form of identity politics in terms like white privilege uh, is most clearly expressed. So you think we should be talking about ruling class privilege? Yeah, well, even privilege is, is not even necessarily the, the, the right category, because, again, it's something that applies to, you know, or, or it comes to us from a very different form of society, um, well, sort of almost pre-capitalist one. So, yeah. yeah, Alex is right. I mean, it's it's but this is its purpose, right? I mean, it's the language of uh, meritocracy. So it's talking of privilege in terms of privilege is the language of progressive neoliberalism. And it's transplanting the categories effectively of the pre-capitalist past onto a capitalist present and thereby actually effacing, one might even say erasing, as they like to say, erasing, erasing the actual um, social conditions and questions of the present. I mean, that's effectively the purpose of all the privilege talk. It's complete nonsense. Well, I might have mentioned, this, I might have mentioned this study before. I, I, stop me if I have, but that, uh, that they've there's one sort of um, experiment where they've given white people, white middle class people, a text to read about white privilege and then examine their attitudes after having read it. And they find that those people are much more sensitized and have internalized a sort of white guilt and but are not more predisposed to uh, any sort of economic redistribution towards uh, poor black people. But the main important effect is that they are not predisposed at all to poor white people because they think poor white people are just a bunch of losers who, on top of being losers, have all this white privilege, which they, which they're failing to capitalize on. So, um, you know, I think that just that just shows that uh, that, that this sort of logic of white privilege is just a, a way for uh, the, especially the professional managerial class and even section of the elite to uh, to justify their own positions in society. But that study seems flawed. It needs a comparison where you get people to read a bit of Marx and then you get to see about their attitudes towards various things <laughs> after having read that. Awesome, uh, Lenin. I don't know. All, all the classics. <laughs> all right. Let's let's just let's read, let's, just let's, read Capital Volume One and then oh, see okay. how people. That's two, that's two recordings in a row. Let's, You've done that. I can't believe that. Um, yeah. All right. Let's take this very last question uh, because I think it, it would it'd be it's a nice way to um, put uh, some 
spew some icing all over this cake. Um, why left populism? Isn't this reinventing the wheel? Why not a more established form of socialism like Marxism-Leninism, but without the in-group jargon or historical LARPing? So uh, to, to elaborate a little bit further, uh, this is again a question from, from Dan in Baltimore. Uh, Populist movements tend to coalesce around a charismatic figure while being underdeveloped both theoretically and organizationally. And he gives the example of Chavismo in, in Venezuela. Uh, wouldn't a counter-hegemonic bloc be better anchored by a party that's disciplined and organized enough to remain intact during crises or assaults? Um, we've discussed left yes. populism before, I mean, especially we discussed it with Anton Yeager in, in a lot of depth. Uh, in what I think is a really good episode, which uh, came out at the the very end of last year, which you might want to check out if you want more on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I basically agree with all that. Uh, I think left populism still is trying to still remains within this logic of trying to compile a rainbow coalition from various different uh, interest groups and NGOs and the rest um, in the absence of, uh, of of actual of the of the masses actually coming into politics so um it's a i think it's a it's a product of of our times very much and, and it is not necessarily a solution i mean yeah i i th- so my my take on this is that left left populism is either the last kind of leftist formation of the end of history or the first at the end of the end of history and that mm. we shouldn't really think that when politics has come back, that essentially we're going to be able to, to to get it right the first time, and I think that you know left pop, populist parties have a whole range of weaknesses, and some of which, uh, particularly organisationally, that, that Dan um, points to there. And I think it's you know it we shouldn't be too discouraged when these left populist movements um, eventually fail and break themselves on the, the rock of the EU or. or or get power in very limited circumstances and aren't able to to achieve a complete reformation of society. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I hope that this is a, a staging post um, and step towards a towards the rebirth or the, the re-entering of of class politics, along with all its references, its necessary references, which are not historical LARPing, to to the first volume of Capital. So this is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan, for giving me the the window to uh, to refer to this again. That's uh, it. That's that's that's, it. Right. that's my Phil. Take. I mean, I don't have anything to add to what's been said. Uh, I mean, you know, the whole reason for left populism is precisely the defeat of the left. So it's not possible to um, to conjure up the forms of the past as if they could be um, simply uh, magically kind of transplanted to the present. So, Yeah, I mean, just one point that, I, that I'd like to make on left populism is just often it's not really spelled out what it exactly entails, who the agent of left populism is. And if it's an attempt to get beyond uh, the language of uh, Marxism, which uh, seems not to have any purchase today, I'm totally fine with that. If it actually suggests uh, not a class-based politics, but one compiled from various different 
actors into some sort of rainbow coalition, uh, then I think we're still stuck in the logic of, of the end of history times, where uh, you could see it in the anti-global movement, which was obviously a, a failure, um, and various attempts to, to bring together various different groups where there is no real coalescing interest or, or vision of society, um, and, and, and consequently ends up, and ends up failing, and, being, and also ends up being completely dominated by its liberal uh, professional managerial class sections. Uh, which is, I think, what we what we see with with certain contemporary attempts that they're not able to actually f- maybe fulfill their promise because they are still uh, at least their leadership remains trapped within progressive neoliberalism, albeit the most radical left wing of progressive neoliberalism, and so therefore aren't able to move forward. Um, so I guess again, it depends very much on what you mean by by left populism. I would. I mean, I think populism itself is problematic. Um, because uh, and there's all these uh, kind of um, complex and maybe even overwrought and tedious occasionally debates, academic debates about how to define it. But I think it has to involve some sense of um, a a united people um, posed against some external uh, or even foreign perhaps elite. And I think that's almost always a very dangerous way of understanding the dynamics of um, politics in modern capitalist societies. So I think populism by its very nature is um, the wrong way to conceive of our solutions. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, if a new actor comes in and, and is able to act and speak in the name of, of the people as a whole, and, you know, we've made reference to the Gilets Jaunes, I mean, maybe that could be something uh, like what that would look like. Um, populism is, you know, it's not it's not how you imagine politics should be, but it might be an important staging post along the way to, to reforming class politics and socialism. Uh, in the future, mm. I mean, it's a, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical because the people don't have class interests. I mean, it's it seems like why not talk about the working class? That is a group of people who have a set of definable, inescapable economic interests. Um, that the people you can say, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Is it's a it's a kind of slip, quite slippery discursive formulation um i don't know why i used that phrase um (laughs) i saw myself about to say it and then i just went ahead and said it um but yeah and i mean that's that's why it's it's um politically can fit a number of different um categories and yeah i mean maybe maybe you are right that it is a necessary way to start to articulate mass demands um which then hopefully can be can be led by um, by groups making specific material demands. All right, that's uh, let's we should wrap up here. Uh, this has been the first uh, Bunga reading group where we've discussed Nancy Fraser's uh, "The Old Is Dying and the New Cannot Yet Be Born." We uh, are going to return with more of these. Uh, we plan to do these fairly regularly. Uh, do let us know what you thought of this. Um, do send us in questions and comments. Uh, obviously, we'd like to carry on this discussion. Uh, we think that, as we said, that th- th- this book has some certain useful categories which we might refer back to again. Um, and if you do have any suggestions also, if you think that we really need to be discussing this long essay or book um, in the next reading club, do let us know uh, what that should be. All right, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>